Hello and welcome to another episode of The Lowdown. Today I am absolutely delighted to be joined by the Technical Director of Auckland Soccer Club and one of the co-founders of Auckland Roots, Benno Nagel. Benno, welcome to the show. Hey, hey, how's it going, man? All good. Benno, I suppose if you could just begin by giving everyone a brief background of yourself and your love for soccer. Yeah, so Oakland born and raised, um, which is kind of there's, I wouldn't say we're a dying breed, but there's not as many Oakland uh, local folks, native folks that uh, kind of still in Oakland. So uh, holding on, trying to stay strong. Um, I grew up in the Bay. I, I played uh, youth soccer here locally, kind of in the age before the U.S. Development Academy and all the cool things that these kids uh, today have. So I can kind of uh, complain about that uh, for as much as I want. And I played collegiately in San Francisco State, so I was always kind of a Bay a Bay guy and continued to play for a number of years after college. Uh, we, we weren't, again, weren't lucky with kind of a built out lower league system in the same way uh, that they have today. So another reason to, to complain a bit. Um, and then as a, as a player, 25, 26, I kind of started getting into coaching and really kind of fell in love with, with that idea of like giving back beyond myself, right? Like as a player, you have your performance, you have the team's performance, you have all the, the fun stuff that lives with that, but it kind of stops there. And so as a coach, you're kind of thinking about, wow, I can, impact these young people's lives. I was working at the beginning of my career with, with very young players. So it's a very noticeable uh, impact. And that kind of gave me the bug about coaching. And I said, okay, well, I want to try to get to the highest levels I can. And so that was kind of a bit of uh, the beginning of an odyssey that took me to a bunch of different places. Um, I lived in Fresno, I lived in Oklahoma City, I lived in Holland, I lived in Croatia, um, kind of felt like I was on the verge to live in a few different places, had other projects materialize that they didn't come to pass. And then eventually found myself uh, back in Oakland with a bit of a yearning for being at home and, uh, you know, planted roots, uh, so to speak, uh, with everything that we did from there. Well, it's quite the journey. And just in terms of Oakland itself, having lived in the Bay Area before, I know it's an unbelievable place to be. There's a thriving arts scene, there's a thriving culture scene. It's the birthplace of Tupac Shakur, the likes of Tom Hanks, the Black Panther movement. Well, how would you, as somebody who's Oakland born and raised, describe the city itself, the culture and demographic? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's really a beautiful city in the sense that it's at the epicenter of some of the biggest ideas that have come out of like humankind, if you think about it. And it's not just Oakland, right? It's like the Bay Area, it's Berkeley, San Francisco, just that whole kind of counterculture movement that came about, um, which is kind of at, at one uh, level of kind of Oakland culture. At the same time, you had a lot of families during World War II, um, especially African-Americans from the South that were moving into the Bay Area and working in the shipyards um, and kind of building uh, industry for the war. And after that, you kind of had, you know, over time, kind of a breaking down of the different factories that were there and a loss of jobs and just kind of industries that shifted and moved away. And so unfortunately, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, poverty that's ensued from Oakland. Um, and so there's kind of like this this grittiness uh, that exists within Oakland and just the, the, the hardships that are experienced by people um, lacking resource. And at the same time, you have uh, this kind of artistic, uh, creative, uh, which, you know, oftentimes you see in, in kind of low resource environments, like people are, are really pushed to creative uh, extremes um, in a good way. And I think if you add that to some of the ideas that were coming out um, with kind of the counterculture movement in the 60s and the 70s about, you know, what the world could be, uh, Oakland and the Bay Area really kind of became the, the testing ground, you know, for those ideas. And so I think that's a long-winded way of saying that I think Oakland is just one of the coolest uh, places in the world 
um, because it has the realities of, of life, which, you know, are what they are and we try to make them better, but it also still has aspirations for what can be beyond that. And that just makes it a very special uh, place to live. Yeah, no, it's quite a fascinating place, but even just, it's no coincidence then you speak about the likes of Tupac, the likes of Tom Hanks and all these ideas bristling out of one small area. It's no coincidence that they, these people and these movements embody all these kind of traits of grit, desire, hard work. But going forward into the next 10, 15 years, what does that mean for the talent pool going forward, more specifically, the soccer talent pool coming out of Oakland and the surrounding Bay Area? I think that there's going to be more and more opportunities for young kids to see something tangible in front of them. And I think that's the, one of the biggest things that holds the country back is we still don't have that very well-developed culture of soccer. And so, you know, if you just think to, um, you know, the example of a five-year-old kid, um, you know, in, in Croatia, right? And so I got my, my cat jumping up here in my seat. That was, that was the one that was uh, yowling the last couple of seconds there. But um, you know, if, you, if you think to Holland, right, and you think to a five-year-old kid or a three-year-old kid or even a five-month-old kid, is they're able to see, sorry, I got this guy hanging here. Get out of here, bud. Um, how many, you know, how many black cats is good luck? <laughs> I've got two of them. So, you know, I'm really, I'm really pressed for some good stuff. Um, we'll just <laughs> let, him, let him hang out here. But, um, yeah, you know, you have a kid who gets to see that at an early age, right? And so when you talk about forming an idea of who they can be and what they can be, seeing is believing, especially for young kids, right? When you go through, I think, up until the age of seven, that learning is actually most easiest achieved by young kids by seeing, right? And so they can actually take something that's right in front of them and actually take that and then transfer that to themselves and apply that, you know, in their own uh, development, right? And so I think if you think to the U.S., most kids get exposed to soccer at the U8 age group. So already for those kids in the U.S., they've missed those first seven years of like just seeing, right? Like seeing their dad with the soccer ball, seeing it on the TV, even if they're in their, their crib, you know, seeing it wherever it is that they kind of come across it. And so I think, you know, my hope over the next couple of years is that more exposures to young kids occur, right? Where they can go see whether that's a, a team in NISA, a team in the USL championship, an MLS team, an MPSL team, just wherever it happens to live. Um, you know, hopefully the 2026 World Cup, you know, there'll be kind of more exposure around the game coming to the States. And so, you know, things like that, right? You talk about uh, building the circumstances for a sporting environment to become, you know, not just like successful, but like at the top, right? Like to dominate success, you really have to get into the cultural components. And so I think as I see the last 10 years, you know, and I think back to my career and how uh, much has kind of grown. And then I think forward to the next 10 years, you know, that's where I start saying, okay, like there's, there's actually going to be some, some sizable growth here. It just takes a decade or so. Right. So it's kind of a bummer <laughs> not to disappoint all the, the coaches out there that are hoping for it to happen tomorrow, but are the fans, but it, it just takes a while to build uh, a well, culture. I mean, yeah. Well, I think as you said, they're seeing is really believing, but even I'm just intrigued someone like yourself, Benno, growing up in the Bay area, Having lived there myself over the past few years, you know, pathways for youth development aren't necessarily abundant. So going back in time, not too far, <laughs> but um, when you were growing up, I suppose, you know, you couldn't get your soccer fix at home. So in a way, you were pushed to go to the likes of Holland, to the likes of Croatia, abroad, to Europe, 
to get that fix. What was the inspiration for you growing up? What was that passion? Who was that person you lent on perhaps that pushed you in that direction? Uh, well, it came from a few different places. Some, my dad, you know, he was uh, not a soccer player. He was a wrestler. Um, and so he, you know, took me out and we'd play a little soccer, we'd play a little football, we'd play a little baseball. It's kind of like the multi-sport development that I had. I, I played, you know, this is again, back in the day, I'm, I'm 33. So I didn't have a cell phone until I was like 17 years old, uh, only because my parents wanted to know where I was on the weekends. Otherwise, you know, I never would have had one. But, uh, you know, we kind of had that that last generation where you grew up on the on the playground. You, you rode your bike to school. You played with your friends late into the dark. And so I was kind of able to get um, a lot of different exposures. I ultimately got um, into soccer uh, through watching Manchester United as a young kid. And, you know, Roy Keane was my favorite player. So, you know, I don't know how that's going to sit with you, but I loved, I loved Roy Keane. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just kind of something where um, between my father and just kind of encouraging me to play sports, I had some friends that had played as well. So that kind of became like a social thing uh, for me to, to be with him. And then you just get the bug of competing and then soccer is such a fun one because, you know, you can really uh, walk away from a match with a very clear feeling of like, okay, this went well, this didn't go well, you know, this is what happened. Uh, and so I just kind of got that, that hook. Um, and that was kind of what spurred me to, uh, to play. As far as coaching, um, I think it was a recognition of what we were talking about before, where it's like, all right, this is going to be 10 years. Or like I'm going to commit my entire life to moving the needle a little bit, um, which I wasn't opposed to, but I also recognized at that moment that, um, you know, I wasn't like knocking on the door for professional soccer in the States. And so it was like, all right, well, if I go abroad, uh, one, I'm gonna get exposure to a real environment, so I'll get to develop myself better. And then two, if I'm successful, I'm, I may be able to come back to the States and kind of be, you know, better informed, better educated, and maybe better positioned because of having been uh, been abroad. So that was a little bit of like, not to say trying to leapfrog, but, you know, recognizing, I remember very clearly I had an under 15, I was coaching an under 15 academy team uh, in the States and I'm there before the game. And I'd been up the night before thinking about the game plan strategy that morning, this, that, the other. And I'm there and a couple of players on the team, like top players, kids that are now playing at Stanford University, actually which is, a, a, you know, the national champion team, like three of the last four years. And they were talking about the high school football game from the night before, like American football, you know, and we're getting ready to play a match, right? And so I'm sitting there and I remember that very vividly. I was like, the culture just isn't here, you know? So am I going to go and put it out for these kids um, and then maybe leave something on the table for my own career aspirations? And uh, so just, it was kind of a, a, a mixture of all those reasons why I just said, you know what, I, I want to be with the best where I can be pushed, where I can push and actually have something to aspire to. That's like a real uh, thing, socially acceptable thing. And that was kind of, I think what gave me the, the push to go abroad and, and see what I could do. And eventually Benno, I mean, all those experience, experiences kind of cross pollinated for yourself when, and you did put that idea into fruition with the Oakland roots. But how exactly did that come about and how hard was it to establish what's now a USL team within the Bay Area? Um, well, it came about, you know, I, I came back, I was with Royal OKC in the NASL. Uh, we had a, a great roster. You know, I got to coach uh, the Greek players, Samaras, Georgia Samaras, uh, Robbie Finley, uh, Derek Boateng, who played in two World Cups with Ghana. 
a long list of, of guys that had pretty um, Marvin Chavez who played a long time for the earthquakes and that project uh, folded <laughs> like very kind of infamously. They had a, a big issue. Ryo Vallecano owned the club and there was a local owner in, in Oklahoma city. They had kind of a falling out. Ryo Vallecano had been relegated from La Liga to a second league. So the money was gone and the whole project just went to, to crap really, really quick. And so I had come back at that point. I had been in, in Holland, Croatia, Fresno, Oklahoma city and I was like, you know, this is cool. Like, I love pro sports. It's fun to be at the highest level, like all those things. But, you know, you're also kind of like nomadic. And I was 27 turning 28 or 28 turning 29, one or the other. And I was like, all right, well, you know, I know the phone's going to ring eventually. There's going to be a new gig somewhere. And uh, what do I do in the meantime? And so I kind of started with this idea that I had going back to being a player 23, 24, 25, where I played in a number of really good teams uh, with some, uh, you know, amazing players. And we just didn't have the leagues below it. There wasn't third division pro soccer, you know, there wasn't even really fully built out fourth division soccer, you know, so there was like Sunday league and then like really top level Sunday league. And then some uh, semi-pro teams in the national premier soccer league. And so I kind of had reflected on what I had seen as a player of like noticing, um, you know, hey, there's good players here, but there's not really organization. There's no business. There's no fans. There's none of these things. I just said, all right, I'm going to try to try to put something together. Um, in terms of the degree of difficulty, um, it's mixed. It's hard. But once you commit yourself to doing something 24-7, and I think this was something I was able to draw upon, having been a player and a coach, where, like, that was all I did. Um, there's a lot of time in the day to push on stuff, you know? And so if you're able to just like dedicatedly focus on something and block out distractions and just, you know, it's maybe not great to be narrow focused forever, but if you can find a period of time, you can push stuff forward. Um, you know, with pro sports, you have to find investors that are willing to write checks to, to kind of make things happen. And I'm not a, a person of wealth. So that definitely wasn't something I was going to be able to do. Um, and so what I recognized was, okay, well, if you just put yourself at the epicenter of Oakland soccer and you understand the culture, you understand the history, you know, people locally, and you, you can kind of be the vision uh, gatekeeper developer, not like it was my vision. It was my idea. And then talking to other people within Oakland to kind of co-create a vision about what the club could be. And that was what created something that felt real and authentic. And I think that ultimately attracted um, investors that said, yeah, we want to see if this can grow into um, a business. So degree of difficulty was, was hard for those reasons, but going back to this whole, like, if you just jump off the cliff, you know, you're either going to die and like, you don't got to worry about it, or you're going to be successful and fly out of there and then be in a better spot. So that, that would kind of be a long way of saying, uh, starting a club is like a roller coaster, I guess, in a, in a, in a pretty healthy and awesome way. What's more is a lot of people listening, Ben, they're pretty unfamiliar with American soccer and I think clubs like Oakland Roots, Chattanooga, Detroit are all remarkable case studies in terms of what a club can contribute and give back to their community. They certainly for me redefine the origin of a soccer club. I mean if you look at European clubs back in the day they were initially established to represent <laughs> underprivileged communities. So I mean establishing the Roots was that more a case of let's do something for the city of Auckland through the lens of soccer, or was it, I don't think it was, but was it, let's establish a soccer club and see how far we can take it. 
Well, I think to be honest, it was probably both, you know, in the sense that like as a player, you know, I had frustrations of like not having had the best environments and from level of coaching that I had to fields that I played on to just, you know, there's always that as a player where you're like recognizing what you could have had and then wanting the, the boys and girls and men and women that come kind of after you. So I think there was definitely an element of like, okay, high level sports is fun. Uh, can we provide that to, you know, something here? Uh, but when you already know the power of sport and the power of soccer, it's like probably one of, especially with soccer, right? It's like lowest common denominators between people, like globally, you know, religion, uh, soccer, <laughs> maybe on in some places, soccer is number one, religion is number two. I mean, like it's up there, right? With like, even in the Bay, you know, soccer is probably more, more of a common thread between people than American football is today than baseball is today. Maybe basketball, no, because, you know, the Warriors have just been so successful the last couple of years. Um, and we have great fan bases with with the A's and the Raiders where there's like a very heavy sports culture. So it was just kind of recognizing um, that Oakland has an amazing kind of platform already and that through the power of sport and soccer, you know, it could be you know, like kind of leveraged and not in a, in a manipulative way, but just kind of leveraged through its its positivity to draw, you know, resource towards issues in Oakland. So it's kind of a, a two-pronged thing where it's like the, not the personal ambition, but just the ambition to bring resources to like a smaller group of people, like high-level soccer players, but then also tapping into this like broader platform of Oakland, people in need, and kind of using that vehicle of sport to, um, you know, speak to that. Of course. And one can't talk about Oakland sports without mentioning the fan culture, as you touched on yourself with the likes of the Raiders and the Warriors. I mean, their fans were absolutely brilliant over the years, and those two franchises did so much for the city of Oakland. Unfortunately, they're both gone now. Anyone that's familiar with uh, Last Chance You and Netflix will know that you guys play at Laney College. Now, before COVID, what was the match day experience like? at an Oakland Roots game? Oof, man, it was awesome. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, well, first going back to Ryo OKC, uh, you know, we had like an 84,000 square foot modular turf surface that we put out there. So uh, you talk about like questionable field surface, you know, um, it, it, it was safe, no one, nobody died. So it wasn't that bad, but uh, you know, it was just like the party that people would see which was the block party and, you know, food trucks and live music and, uh, you know, performances, musical performances before the game and just all these really creative, innovative things that I, th I think we, you know, we did very well. Uh, but then there's kind of like behind the scenes of like laying out that turf and kind of having to literally build out a game day experience, you know, every time new because we'd have to take the field off. We'd take out all the stuff and then it'd go back to being used for football and track and just other uh, uses right so it was a really cool experience i think to see um in oakland and i'm sure this is in, in other places where you have like street fairs and street festivals and, and you know kind of a block party if you will right and so it was like perfectly lined where there was a main street uh, right next to the the entrance point to the to the venue and so we were just able to shut that down with with uh, kind of permits and created a very amazing kind of block party uh, vibe right and it just led it almost became like the, the fan concourse if you had built it on purpose you maybe would have built something like that to kind of be this external kind of gathering point for people before they they funnel into their seats 
So it just worked out uh, perfectly. And despite the field challenges, you know, if you throw a cool party in Oakland, people will show up. And so we ended up getting, um, yeah, I mean, the six games that we played, right, every game was, wasn't a sellout because, you know, you, you, we ended up giving out a lot of tickets to folks um, just to try to get people in. But, um, you know, the, the numbers were, were pretty healthy and people wanted to come. And so it turned out to be a pretty cool, pretty cool party. I don't know if you ever saw the the video when we beat, or not beat, when we tied uh, Chattanooga at the end of the game and, you know, folks went crazy and people give us a lot of shit for that because we were celebrating a tie. But, um, <laughs> you know, we had at that point played like, that was our that was our fifth game. We we played Michigan Stars the next weekend and, and got our first kind of league victory. But we had played those first four games. We beat Zacatepec, a Mexican team, but the other three had not been uh, winning performances, and uh, you know it kind of definitely let uh, people down or let people you know kind of leaving disappointed. And so to to experience that moment when we equalized that game late, especially being a man down. Uh, I'll never, never forget that in my life. It was, it was pretty special. Of course, COVID happened like two weeks later <laughs> and, you know, now it feels like it was a decade ago, but um, yeah, it was a really special place. I think though soccer is just a sport of moments. I think it's just those memorable experiences. When you think about it, really, it takes a few seconds to score a goal, but it's weird in a way those memories last a lifetime, so to speak. And yeah. You know, talking about brand positioning and marketing, I know that's huge too for the Roots. Um, they're the first American team to join the Common Goal movement. And they're involved with Soccer Without Borders. And they even had a partnership with Matt Wolf, who's renowned for designing the, fam the infamous 2018 Nigerian World Cup kit. I mean, how central is this brand positioning to the club's operations? I think, to be honest, right now and this is just my opinion if you look at my lawsuit and some of the things that happened like it's definitely hollow words um i think that is one of the challenges or like we drank our own or not we you know the people that are leading the marketing efforts within club and you can look on the record about that i think drank the kool-aid a little bit too soon um not from a, a devious perspective like i don't think that they're manufacturing a brand um to try to be like deceitful or elusive or whatever the main investors in the club for sure like they're not about social equity and, and 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 you know racial equality in the sense of going against the grain like it's a very corporate this is how it is type of thing and that is just kind of speaking off of my experience uh specifically with my my law student kind of things that happen but you know i think if you look to some of the partners that we have or that roots has soccer down borders um some of these other clubs who are also members of common goal and when you look to like Juan Mata and, and why he kind of got around that, I think it's a really interesting uh, idea, right? Is in saying, okay, uh, you as an individual, you know, it'd be great if you give 100% of your salary, like that's awesome. But if you just give 1%, you, know, you can kind of accomplish a lot by doing a little with many people. And so I think it was a, a cool, um, just kind of a paradigm shift. And so I think, you know, the, the ideas and the, and the desires from the club to be involved with that are great. Like there's nothing wrong with positive intention, um, but you actually have to like act on that and do that. And I think that's where, you know, not just coming from me, but you'll hear that from, from local people in the community where it's like, are you talking to talk and walking the walk, you know? And then that's uh, not to throw roots under the bus with that. Like it's a hard thing to take on, you know, racial inequities and racism and, and kind of like the systemically flawed systems that exist in the, in the States and everywhere. Um, but I wouldn't anoint them as like the saviors of anybody just yet. They've got, 
you know, 10 years, right? 10 years to build a culture uh, we're entering, they're entering the second year. So there's still ways for them to go. And you speak about there being friction within the club, Benno. I mean, sometimes that's just inevitable when you're form formulating a new organization. Other times it's kind of just self-sabotage. For people thinking about establishing their own soccer club or in the midst of running a brand new operation like the guys at the Roots, what advice would you have for them to kind of remove? I suppose to get people humming on the same page, so to speak, because I mean, from the outside in, it seems like a wonderful establishment. There's great people there, obviously speaking to you before, you know, the intentions are good, but more often than not, we see even in Europe, you know, with the with people speaking about this European Super League, I think the key decision makers in football, unfortunately, are those that have the power and those that have the power have the money. And I think in today's age, that renders the soccer fan null and void. How do we how do we go about, you know, recovering the essence that is soccer, putting the fan at the forefront? I think it's recognizing where it started. It started at community levels. And if you think about today, everybody is trying to spend money from big brands to try to figure out how can we be authentic? How can we, we be genuine? And so it's like this kind of like, it becomes manufactured. Um, and and I, I think that if people can recognize it, they hold the power to a sports team. Um, it's, it's really, you know, the U.S. has a lot of um, unfortunate realities, but the cool thing about the U.S. is you can start something from scratch. And the challenge is you can't go farther than the league formats will let you. So that's kind of like, you know, a mixed mixed bag. Um, but even in, in the U.K., right, you can get a hold of the team in like the conference level. And, you know, if you move it up, you know, eventually you have to take on investors. So I guess the first piece of advice I would give to anybody doing that is have a very good lawyer who reads everything uh, and pick good partners who aren't going to be, the wrong people down the road. You know, we went from being valued at 2018 to like half a million dollar valuation or something like that. So now being valued at like $30 million, uh, which, you know, I will just leave that there for people to decide if they feel that that's actually uh, a real value. But, um, you know, when you see the, the growth of something financially like that, what ended up happening was, was people kind of started showing their true colors. And we ended up, my partner and myself actually ended up getting into a, a closed door private uh, disagreement with the two main investors in the club. Uh, we were kind of told to waive some rights in exchange for some promises, which kind of came about while we went to pursue the USL license. Uh, so we waived some some rights that we had against anti-dilution in our operating agreement. We weren't uh, cash contributors. So for every dollar we took in, you know, we were owning less of something that was worth more. Um, but that was coming from our consent to say, okay, we're willing to go from owning 20% to 19% to 18% and all the way down. And we had gotten to a point where we were just not feeling comfortable uh, proceeding and had kind of been, again, promised, hey, if you waive this right, which we had in our agreement uh, so that we can go buy this license, well, then we'll give you a new ownership interest back after that deal closes that will kind of keep you where you're at forever. And so that was kind of, a, again, like pick a good lawyer or have a good lawyer. Uh, we didn't have one and we just took them at their word and then wound up kind of together, actually pushing back against them for a number of months. Uh, I eventually made it clear to them that I wasn't gonna kind of like take the very poorly compromised uh, proposal that ended up kind of being on the table as like a take it or leave it offer. And they added some pretty shitty language, uh, sorry to swear, but they added some pretty bad language about 
um, you know, having to waive rights to future legal claims, not being able to vote on my own separation in the future, although I was a board member and had a vote and controlled my partner's vote uh, because I had more ownership interest in him. So I, I made it known that I wasn't going to go along with that and they wound up cutting a deal with my partner and all this kind of made for TV uh, drama stuff. So not to like go into the minutia of what happened to me, but just kind of as a lesson for, for people is like pick good partners and make sure that you have a really uh, awesome lawyer that's, that's looking at everything that comes across your desk. But if you can get that framework, you know, and then you start talking about, okay, well, what do we do? How do we build this? How do we harness kind of the people power of something? Um, ultimately, I think organizations that can have genuine roots, if you will, into the community, like actually from the community. And, and what we did was we didn't go to people and say, hey, uh, here's a table for you to sit at and we're going to give you this script and you come and like speak, right? Like in the beginning, at least, you know, we came to people and said, hey, like lend your voice to this. Like, what do you want to see? What do you want to have from a club? And that enabled us to actually get buy-in from people early on which then kind of validated kind of our, our credentials, if you will, in terms of like, is this a genuine project in its intention? As we launched, as we became successful, you know, big business kind of happens and people kind of change uh, who they are, which is, you know, just kind of what it is. But, um, you know, at the ethos, it was a people powered project. And so I think, you know, for clubs around the world um, where they're trying to uh, kind of tap into that, you know, um, I think it's, it's, it's there to be done. You know, if you have a lot of resources, I think you can do a great job getting in with, with local community people uh, genuinely. But if you're even a small club without resource, I think if you can lean into that more and really embrace your localism, the people in your community, you know, hopefully those people then come to support you and ultimately the team is successful, right? Like that's kind of a bigger driver overseas here in the, in the States. You have to like convince people like, hey, we have a game on Saturday don't go to the music festival, don't go to the movies, you know, abroad, like if you, if you're winning, you know, people will just kind of, you know, gravitate around that. And so it's just a different uh, proposition. But if you have high performing football, soccer, and you're engaged with the community, and not just with some surface level, like community foundation scheme, but like, actually like trying to lead change in your community, then I think uh, you can really be a powerful club, especially if you think about digital media and telling stories, you know, on social platforms, it can now be seen by 30 million people or something like that, you know? Um, and so that's, again, a long-winded response, but that's just kind of an off-the-cuff uh, reaction for you. Well, of course. I mean, it's quite a remarkable situation, really. Um, a lot of people listening will probably be obviously unaware of the situation, Benno, and will find it pretty remarkable. But, you know, I mean, these stories, you know, that are coming to light, such as what have happened at the Roots, are becoming nearly all too common in all sports. People, I mean, they're clearly not soccer people. So it just goes to show, is there anything perhaps at a foundation level at US soccer or NISL or at the USL level, is there anything they can do going forward to prevent future situations from arising? I think there's a lot of good people trying to do things in good ways. Um, you know, there's good people in the USL. There's some great people in NISA, you know, with really big ideas. You look at what they're trying to do. They're trying to like break the system and change it. Um, you know, even within US soccer, there's people that work there that are just trying to get along and, and, and push it forward in their reality. 
there's obviously a lot of bad people in the game, right? So it's just kind of a challenge on both sides of it. Um, yeah, I really don't have an answer for that. I think it, it'll come back to local communities and, you know, kind of eventually people saying, hey, like, we don't like your team. He's had this stuff with Charlotte FC, the MLS club, and it's kind of like seat licensing stuff that's going on. All right, well, I'm not going to your games. You know, I'm going to go watch Stumptown play in Nisa, or I'm going to go watch Charlotte Independence play in USL. You know, and I'm, not, I'm not going to MLS. I think that's, that's really what moves it, right? It's a capitalist system, so supply and demand. If, if people aren't coming about it and they're not getting around it, then eventually the behavior of the organization has to change. And so I think until people kind of take their power back and realize like, hey, let me vote with my dollars and my feet, because that's what I can do as an everyday consumer. You know, that's where you can actually get uh, pressure put on organizations to do things differently. And since then, Benno, you've obviously left the roots. You've taken up the position of technical director at Oakland Soccer Club. Just curious, what's the role, the responsibilities involved, and how excited are you for the future? I'm excited. It's a good project. It's, um, you know, it's a 47-year-old community based on profit. So it's like grassroots to the grassroots, um, but it's awesome. You know, it's good people. And, and it's it, we have, you know, we've added men's team, a men's team, a women's team, and an over 30, over 40, over 50 division. Uh, so, you know, we're building uh, for the future. I'll kind of just leave that there as a placeholder, uh, you know, what that means. But, um, you know, it's, it's just a good group of, of people that are trying to help the community. And so it gets me excited to be able to, like, draw upon my experiences and help them. Um, it's it's a, a volunteer, non-compensated uh, position. So it's like, although I'm not a multimillionaire, if I, if I have to be philanthropic, you know, I want to give up my time to something I believe in. And it's not even like I'm giving something that's mine. Like I've had along the way, people give information to me, give experiences to me, help me learn. And so my only requirement is to try to play that forward. And I was just in a good position to be able to do that uh, with them. And so we're, um, you know, at one point stabilizing the club and just helping them kind of grasp with, you know, pay to play and what that means. And at the next uh, side of it, you know, how do we push forward and how do we expand, uh, you know, adding adult soccer kind of, uh, you know, taking on a new um, kind of cradle to the grave, on field, off field, you know, player development and human development. Um, so that's that's what gets me uh, a little bit of excitement, just just a little bit. So guys like yourself involved, obviously, in youth development currently, wavering, ushering in the next generation of American talent. You see guys now like Christian Pulisic, Tyler Adams, Gio Reyna, Weston McKenney at the forefront playing European football week in, week out. However, they all took different paths, some through MLS academies, others straight over to Europe at the age of 15, 16. Going forward, what would you see more beneficial for US soccer? Would you be more homogeneous in terms of players should stay at home, develop in the MLS before going abroad, or would it be more beneficial going out to Europe at a young age? Um, depends on the kid. Yeah, it's not you know? one size fits all, is it? Yeah, yeah. Some kids can can be like, cool, 15, mom, dad, you know, see you later. Now there's there's rules now within the European Union about, you know, parents and families having to come. And, and a lot of that comes from, you know, a lot of kids that have been taken out of Africa and just kind of left, um, you know, and doesn't work out and then they're on the streets, right? So I think you know, it really depends on the kid. Um, if the kid has a good mindset and he's able for that, then you got to go to Europe like as soon as you can, uh, because you're missing cycles of progression. 
you know, even at the youth level, you think about kind of like take take the under 20 men's national team of like five years ago and maybe, you know, 10 years ago, whatever. If you look at that generation of players and then you think about, okay, five years later, how many of them are playing first division uh, football MLS? Probably a lot of them were still, you know, playing MLS. If you take, you know, the English national team, the Irish national team, the Scottish national team, Croatian, Swiss, you know, you take their under 20s and then you go five years forward, right? How many of them are still playing first division or are playing first division? Very, very few, right? Like there are some, of course, because those are countries where they develop top players, but it's not just like a guaranteed ticket to the first uh, tier, right? And so I think there's uh, less competition uh, for players here and that exists at the, at the senior level and it exists obviously at the youth level. And so I think if you're motivated and you're able to deal with the pressure and the, and the kind of living in a country, you maybe don't speak the language, uh, food's different, climate's different, all that stuff. And, and uh, you got to go because that's just the best place to develop. And what then, Benno, can U.S. Soccer Federation and MLS clubs do to perhaps close that development gap? I think they have to make more investment into to youth soccer. Uh, it's challenging because it's a big investment and then you're not really getting that ROI. Although it's no excuse, like these are multi-billionaires. So like just got to pony up the money. Um, but yeah, you, you have to create that that kind of uh, atmosphere where there's there's resources. Um, you don't have too much, right? There's this kind of theory of like the reverse U curve where the resources are good to a certain point. If you think about an upside down U, uh, but at a certain point, too many resources can actually be detrimental to motivation because you just have uh, too much, right? And so I think finding that balance of resource without resource, um, and I, I think that that comes from just clubs making the commitment to saying, we're going to support school-based soccer with our local school districts. We're going to support recreational adult soccer because more adults playing soccer means that they're going to pass that to their kids. Uh, whatever it is to actually like, utilize soccer as a, a vehicle for life um and is taking that from whether that's ayso local youth clubs in the area um you know just that that area if you can actually like create uh, bridges for those players to like see your club see a pathway um and then just really keep that as an open door it does two things one it gives those kids motivation uh, to, to push for something more and the kids in your system in your academy it gives them pressure because now they know that there's pathways for kids to come in and knock them off the perch. And in sports, if you don't have that constant pressure of being replaced or being, you know, uh, in Dinamo Zagreb, right? Like from U12 to U13, 50% of the kids are, are released, you know, because at that age, we start, they start recruiting from, you know, beyond just Zagreb, right? And then at you know, U15, U16, you start seeing kids coming from Albania, kids coming from uh, parts of Southern Bosnia, kids, you know, just, more kids uh coming right and so by the time you're like u17 u18 if you've been in a proper club um, or even if you've like gone from one club to another you've just gone through these evolutions where like close friends haven't made it you've seen people lose their job at even at the youth level like their job right you've seen them lose their spot um, you've seen so much that you're just with a better resiliency and when you get to the top level you know everybody's skilled everybody's fit you know, people have differing levels of motivation, um, but it's really the guys that can cope with the pressure, right? And can actually step into a stadium of 5,000 people, let alone 50,000 people and not have, you know, their heart rate go up unnecessarily because now they're perspiring more, now they're losing water weight, now their coordination is off, now they're making bad decisions. 
Um, and so you just, again, with the, with the American player, they don't get exposed to like the reality of having to fight every day. Um, you know, not like actually fight, but just like fight for their position, fight for their job, fight for everything that is kind of like, are you going to stay in this club or are you going to be let go? Um, they don't have that. And so you get a lot of kids that are playing in the States because it's fun, which it is. It's, like, it's the best sport in the world, but it's missing that other key ingredient, which is like, it's fun, but it's also coveted. And if something is coveted, that means people are going to want to get after it. And that's why I think young Americans going to Europe is, is the best for them because that's where you get, you know, kind of that like push uh, from underneath. Right? And then absent that, you just don't really have necessarily the skills when adversity comes, um, especially at the senior level where it's no longer like, well, he's U15, let's give him another six months to see what he's going to do, you know, or let's give him another year. Oh, his parents just went through a divorce. So let's be easy on him right now in this phase. Like if you're 22 and you can't do the job, you're done. And I think, you know, not having that skill set at that point, it just lets a lot of American players down. And so you see guys that uh, maybe could push on to higher levels and they just don't have that ability to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And it shows and then not just off the field, but it shows decision makings they make during the game. You know, can they force the issue when they need to in a tight space? Can they kind of take that pass to try to, you know, break a line or do something uh, kind of inventive and Americans just don't have that. Um, they just don't have that yet. So. I think we've begun this conversation by you saying seeing is believing. Now, how ironic is it that a guy like you who's had to leave Auckland to go after the soccer world to experience it for himself is in 2026, the soccer world is coming to your back door in the Bay Area. How excited are you for the 2026 World Cup, Benno? And what impact do you hope will have in youth development? Well, I hope you'll see an MLS team in Oakland. So I hope that happens. Um, You're not too happy with a San Jose Earthquakes racking up. Then I suppose. I think the San Jose Earthquakes, the San Jose community is definitely deserving of a, of a really high level team. Uh, John Fisher is just a, not a good owner in my mind, the owner of the Quakes. He also owns the Oakland A's. So I can speak from experience to the level of stinginess that occurs when it comes to spending money on things, but you know, more power to him, I guess. And then it goes back to people just not holding them accountable. Um, but I hope you'll see, you know, an expansion team coming to, to Oakland. Um, I hope to be able to, uh, you know, go to a game at some point, like whether that's, I think they're going to play at Levi's for the 2026 World Cup. So, you know, I hope to be able to see that and experience that. That'll be really cool. Um, you know, I think that it's going to be interesting with what happens next, right? Like you're going to potentially have, I think there's a new television uh, rights deal that will come about sometime around 2026, you know, so does that lead to more money being poured in um, from, whoever the broadcast partners are and then maybe that enables clubs to go out and spend more money to get you know bigger name players earlier in their career so i think that'll be interesting um you know i think infrastructure like it's usually one of the ones where you see them build all these stadiums all of a sudden so like you know maybe there's some uh, development projects that are able to move forward because of the kind of catalyzing force of the world cup so hopefully that's good for wherever that ends up happening uh, you know maybe oakland is one of those places and I just think in general, like seeing as believing, you'll have a generation of kids, you know, just like me, like I can think back to the 2002 World Cup in, in Korea, Japan, where like that was maybe the first World Cup where I watched every game, 
like not just the U.S. game, but like all the games. And you'll have kids that will be able to say, yeah, when I was eight years old, I, I got to go and, and see the U.S. national team play. Or I just saw Colombia play Brazil and it was, you know, awesome. And it's just amazing stuff. And so that's, um, you know, we don't get to see it as much. Although today kids have YouTube, they have, you know, FIFA, <laughs> like all these things to get exposure to it. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful that it brings money, I guess, and money that will more than likely predominantly go to kind of the establishment. But through that, I think that can kind of broaden the pool for groups like NISA, groups like the UWS, which has just announced that they're doing a women's professional division. Um, you know, we all kind of rise with the tide, right? And so there's more resources in the environment, um, despite the fact that they're kind of consolidated in the hands of few, uh, that it'll just allow for, um, you know, the many, right, to kind of have better access to I want to say knocking on the door and, and, and taking from it, but just actually being able to go out and compete and say, Hey, like this is independent soccer and this is kind of franchise soccer and, you know, the, the power of the people, um, you know, and maybe there's now if CBS is funding MLS broadcast or whoever the, the, the person is, you know, maybe now you have another corporate corporation, you know, Fox or somebody else saying, Hey, well, if CBS is going to invest in MLS, well then we're going to put a bunch of money into USL or we're going to put, a bunch of money into NISA or something like that. And so it just kind of creates uh, more competition, uh, which at the end of the day is a good thing. And finally, to close, Benno, where do you see yourself and Oakland soccer in 10 years' time? For sure, MLS program in Oakland. Um, you know, I have some other efforts underway in other parts of the world, which, you know, we can maybe circle back future show on with some really exciting stuff with, with some really amazing people. Um, you know, I, I plan to be in 10 years at the highest level in the world. So at that point, hopefully I'm uh, helping to run or running a club in the Premier League in England. So that's definitely, if you ask me in 10 years, that's, that's what I will be doing. Um, but being involved with Oakland, like I'll be here for life. I'll always have a residence here. Um, I'll be involved in different ways. And, and I think that there can be something more in Oakland. Um, you know, what Roots has done is great. I can speak to that because I, I, I kind of did it. Um, and so I just think that Oakland, you know, it's a place where it deserves something at the highest level because Oakland is a city that has consistently pushed big ideas and kind of like the highest level of human compassion, human empathy, you know, kind of human equality. And so I, I would hope that in 10 years, you've got an MLS team in Oakland and that in some way, shape or form, um, I'm involved either directly or indirectly with that. So that will be, a in 10 years, we'll have to come back on and, and have that call to, to check in and see how that turned out. Yeah, fantastic. Benno, you know I'm a huge fan of your work anyways. Um, it's an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Where's best people to connect with you on social media? Uh, Twitter, uh, I think it's Benno underscore Nagel. Um, I'm on Facebook, just type my name, you can get that. Um, I haven't signed up for TikTok yet. My <laughs> wife got me to sign up for Clubhouse. So maybe I'll come out with a Clubhouse. Uh, so, you know, maybe we hop on and do a Clubhouse session one of these days. Definitely. I can interview you, you know, we can flip yeah. it around. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, you can, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. Um, if you hit me up, like if, if people want to just contact me, I'm, I'm usually pretty available. So always happy to hop on with someone. I can vouch for that too. <laughs> Benno, top man. Absolutely pleasure speaking with you. Sure, man. I appreciate it. Talk soon. All right. Take care.